this message with you. Um, I believe that these types of messages sometimes can be misunderstood and even misinterpreted by Christians in general. And so my prayer is that as we look at this text and as I try to bring it out the way God has put it on my heart, that you will see this from not just what you see with your eyes, but what God looks at in our hearts. And that's why my message is titled today, Dressing from the Heart, with the subtitle of Modesty. Dressing from the Heart, I want to try my best to share biblical truth about modesty from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. So if you would, would you stand with me one last time? We're going to read this portion of Scripture together and honor God's Word as we stand. And then we'll get into the text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says this, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Lord Jesus, I pray now that you would have your way in our hearts and in our church. God, I pray that you will speak to us, Lord, to see the truth of this text, to apply it to our lives, to do so without self-righteousness and without pride. And God, that you would use this message to help us to grow in our Christian life towards one another and towards you. May you increase and I decrease, God, and I give you all the thanks already for what we've seen and felt here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Like I said, I feel like there are certain things in church that pastors shy away from because they just don't want to engage in the difficulties and maybe the pushback that will follow. And so for pastors, we all struggle sometimes to talk about the three M's. I'll call it the three M's. Money, music, and modesty. Over the years, I've seen more problems caused in churches over those three issues than anything else. Not saying that other things can't cause problems, but money, music, and modesty usually seem to be three issues where people take those things real personal and would rather that you not talk about them. So I'm not that guy. If God puts it on my heart, I'm going to preach it, and I'll leave the consequences to you. you know. But I do want to do it with love, and I do want to do it with respect, and I most of all want to do it with the Bible, not with what I think or don't think should be said, okay? So I want to give you a few quotes to kind of just get you thinking about some things this morning. The first one was by a pastor that I'm not familiar with, but I did like what he said here. He says, we live in an identity-addicted society. He said, we strive to put our tastes and acquisitions on display so that everyone can see who we are. He says, we're told to accentuate our best features, get what we want out of life, stand up for and express ourselves. He says, social media is often the megaphone we use to herald our personal identity and covertly brag about our smarts, our body, sexuality, culture, politics, sports, relationships, family, insecurities, experiences, and possessions. Amen to all of that. There was a story that I read, I think it was in either in Reuters or the New York Times. I, I didn't write down. It was one of those two, though. I'm not familiar with this lady either, but she is a comedy writer by the name of Allie Reed. 
she decided to make a fake profile on a dating site just to see what kind of responses she would get. But what she did was this in her little experiment. She posted in the comments in her bio about herself, she posted outlandish things that would probably be or should be a huge turnoff to anybody. But then she got a fake picture from a friend who is an actual model and used the picture of this model as her profile pic. So she says this. She said, I loaded my profile with despicable traits. Some of the things I included were, I enjoy kicking cups out of homeless people's hands. She said, my parents think I'm in law school, so they pay all my bills, laugh out loud. And she said, you should message me if you're rich. All of those things should have been huge red flags to stay away. But again, she put a beautiful picture in the profile. She said, I had the profile up for two or three weeks, and I had close to a thousand men message me. Ten times more of the number than I got on my real profile on that same dating site. Just by putting that picture up there, it didn't matter what she said, how ugly and obnoxious those comments were, the picture was enough to draw a thousand men into her profile and to respond. I'll give you one more. If you're my age, you might know who I'm talking about. If you're older or younger, you're probably going to be like, I have no idea who this person is. That's okay. The point still stands. Hip-hop music artist Mary J. Blige was asked the following question in an interview. This, this questioner asked, Mary, you're, or at least you expressed to be a devout Christian. How do you reconcile all the bling that you wear, the way you dress, with God? Notice her answer. She responded, My God is a God who wants me to have things. He wants me to bling. He wants me to be the hottest thing on the block. I don't know what kind of God the rest of y'all are serving, but the God I serve says, Mary, you need to be the hottest thing this year, and I'm going to make sure that you're doing that. My God is the bomb. End quote. Now, it's easy for us to say, man, that's way off. But that is the response of a lot of professing Christians today is to think that that is how God views them and he wants them to flaunt it and show it off and he's not concerned about the way that you carry yourself in life. And so when we think about our world today, when we think about social media, and I know that we talk about that a lot, but it is the reality of our lives, all of us, just about every age, is in some way connected with social media, either personally or your family is on there some way social media has now been a, become a part of your life i mean the filters guys nobody wants to post a picture of just how they look without dressing it up with all sorts of filters right they make a million of them some of them are fun i'm not saying there's anything wrong with them but you can't even look at a picture on facebook anymore and see what somebody really looks like it's all been doctored it's all been changed and marketing people have doubled down on that they know that they want to make an image. Do you really think that those supermodels and things that you see on television roll out of bed and look like that? I hope you don't believe that. That's a lot of Photoshop to make those things look the way that they do. A matter of fact, image has so much infiltrated our society, and this isn't new, but I was just looking this week as I put this message together at how many types of psychological issues we see in society as a direct result of this 
just overwhelming need to look a certain way or to dress a certain way or to pretend to be a certain way. Here's just a couple of them that I found, psychologically speaking, which is part of a spiritual battle. I'm not saying that there's not a mental side of things. Obviously there is, and I'm a big proponent of seeking help, counseling, medicine, whatever you need on the mental side of things. But there is a spiritual side of that battle too going on. It's not just one or the other. And so eating disorders, anemia, you know, bulimic, all that, or anorexia, I'm sorry, all those things, um, people feel like they have got to weigh a certain weight to be accepted, to be loved, to be pretty. And so all kinds of eating, that's nothing new, but eating disorders. I think depression is tied into a lot of the way that we feel like we have to look a certain way. And if we don't, a lot of people become very depressed that they're not built a certain way or don't look a certain way or not popular like a certain group of people. Neuroticism was another finding of this need to look a certain way because society and the enemy has told us so much that our value is tied up in what we look like, that we define ourselves by what we see in the mirror, not by what God says we are, who God says we are, based on his word and who we are in Christ. So as I, as I try to set this stage, guys, I, I just want to say this, number one this morning. I want to tell you what this message isn't, so there's no confusion. You can't go back and say, well, Pastor was trying to say this. I want to tell you straight up from the start what this message is not. Number one, it's not an attack on young people or their parents. It's not an attack on young people or their parents. This message applies from birth to death, okay? Number two, it's not directed at any specific age. Again, it applies across the board. Number three, it's not directed just at females. This is not my attempt to shame women, and it's not the Bible's attempt to shame women. And lastly, this message is not just about clothes. Matter of fact, clothes are the secondary issue here. There's something deeper, and clothes are just the result, the fruit, one of many things that stems from in here. Okay? So that's, that's what the message is not about, any of those things. But I want to preach this, number one, because I felt like God was put it on my heart. But number two, I know it's touchy, and I know it's easy. Like I said, it's easier to avoid these things because you don't have to deal with people get hurt if they get upset, if they, if whatever, whatever their response may be. Because I know, I've done this long enough to know, if I preach on the big issues out there, I'll get lots of amens. And you guys will be 110% behind me. If I preach on homosexuality, abortion, critical race theory, wokeism, you name it, we're all probably like-minded on that stuff in here, and we're all going to get behind it. But when you preach on issues in the church that can hit us personally, it's not always excitement and amens. People get a little bit more mad. They get a little bit more defensive. And sometimes they just go ahead and just brush it off and tune me out. And I hope you won't do any of those things, at least without giving me the chance, without giving the Holy Spirit the chance to try to convince you from the Word of God what, what this is. Because what I see and what I've seen continually is this. These types of issues will, will usually divide people into one of two camps. It'll usually put people on one of two sides. One side will say, go get them, Pastor. It's about time somebody told these people how they need to wear. I'm tired of seeing too much skin. And now let them have it, Pastor. Let them have it. And then the other side is going to say, well, he ain't going to tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. And nobody's going to tell me. 
And, and both sides are wrong. And, and nothing is going to be accomplished if that is the stand that we take. If it divides us in the end of those two positions, honestly, guys, one is self-righteous and one is self-absorbed. And they're both wrong. They're both wrong. So we have got to, we have got to handle it biblically. We just, we just do. So the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1.22, starting out with this, you are cleansed from your sins. So we're speaking to believers here. We're cleansed from our sins when we obeyed the truth. So now, because of that, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. That includes loving people enough to share with them when they're acting outside of the Word of God. Again, there's a right way to do that. It's not arrogantly. It's not self-righteously. It's meekly and gently going to someone and telling them the truth. I was so glad Loretta shared a story. I won't rehash it, but she shared a story of someone that she worked with when she first got saved and she was, had an issue in her life where she wasn't living as a believer ought to live. And this man had enough courage and enough love to talk to her, and she received it well, and it really helped her. And that is the way that these types of things should be done. We should communicate these things, anything, with love, and hopefully you're meek enough and humble enough to receive it. And maybe you don't initially. Maybe at first you're a little bit taken aback. But hopefully you'll go home, pray on it, study the Word for yourself, and see that that person loved you enough to share the truth, even if it hurt you a little bit at first. So I want us to disciple one another. I want us to help one another. And I want us to examine our hearts to see if we're humble enough to receive these things. So I read to you from 1 Timothy 2. I want you to understand, number one, that in verses 2 and 3, really the whole book, but verses 2 and 3, specifically Paul is speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to folks that have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I, for one minute, don't expect someone that's lost to walk in through those doors and know how they're supposed to live as a believer. They're not going to. So what I'm preaching on today is for the church. If someone walks through this door that's lost and has on all sorts of clothes that are anything but what you would expect to see in church, don't treat them any different. Love them and be patient with them. Give them grace. When they get saved, when they become a member of the church, then the standard changes. But when they're lost, the only thing they need to know at that point is how to know Jesus. And He'll clean them up. If, if we try to clean them up, all we'll do is run them off. I can guarantee you that. And it's not going to help them one bit. They can dress with a three-piece suit and die and go to hell if they don't know Jesus. So it's not about that. But this is for the church. I'm going to read in chapter 3, verse 15, just so you see that I'm not just pulling that idea out of thin air. Chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, But if I am delayed, I write this so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself, where? In the house of God, which, if there's any question, is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So he is writing these things so that Timothy and the people of the church in Ephesus know how they ought to conduct themselves. John 4, 24 Jesus said to this to the woman at the well. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him 
What's that say? Must. You must. Not maybe, not there's wiggle room. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Guys, it matters how we worship. It's not that we have free reign to do this any way we want to do it. Now, there are some Reformed churches that would say, if it's not specifically spelled out in the Bible, you can't do it at all. Most churches that aren't Reformed, including us, do things in church that aren't specifically spelled out in the Bible because we believe that there is some liberty. There's not necessarily a praise team in the Bible specifically spelled out. We don't see passing plates in the Bible specifically. I mean, you know, you could get so detail-oriented and say, well, it doesn't say that in the church, so we shouldn't do it. We're not that extreme. But the Bible does lay out a pattern of how we ought to carry ourselves and how we ought to worship if we want to be pleasing to God. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul writes this. He says, I have the right to do anything as a believer. I have a right to do anything, he says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. See, our liberty has limitations. Just because you're saved and under the blood and forgiven of all your sins doesn't mean you can do just any old thing you want. God still has a pattern for the way we are to live and carry ourselves, specifically in the church. So I want to look at these verses I read to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time today going into a teaching side of things because I really just want to share my heart with you today as a pastor. I really just want to share the Word of God and share a pastor's heart on this subject, if that's all right with you today. Um, So when we read these verses, especially chapter 2, chapter 2 is one of those verses where there's been all sorts of different opinions and, you know, divisiveness, if you will, over these things that are said, especially about women not speaking uh, in public and things of that nature. And we're not getting into that section of it today. But I do want you to see, and I think it's helpful to understand, when we're reading this, there is both a a cultural principle and an eternal principle. And what happens is usually one side will go too far to one or the other, and the text loses its meaning. You can't explain this away and just say, well, Paul was just talking to his culture and it doesn't apply for us today. The Bible is living. It's active. It still applies to us today. So we can't just dismiss certain sections that are difficult because we say, well, that was for them, not us. It has an eternal principle. But the culture does come into play to some degree. And so we've got to try to look at this and figure out what was Paul saying in his time and place and how does that still apply to us. So let's look at those verses I read and we'll try to, we'll try to bring that out where you see a little bit. So in verse 8 he said, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. So I want to try to show you so you'll see it. I want you to see the cultural reference and then I want you to see what I'll call the eternal reference that applies to us still today. Okay? So in that text, in that verse, he says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. In Eastern culture, mid-Eastern culture, in that time, the posture of prayer was often like this. Not We think of lifting hands, and it could have been like that, but more important, mostly it would have been like this. Now, maybe some of you still worship that way. You close your eyes and hold your hands out. 
But most of the time when we pray, how do we as Americans pray? We bow our heads. Maybe some people fold their hands, right? The posture may change from culture to culture. You may fall prostrate on the ground. You may get down on your knees. You may stand. Those are cultural differences. That can change. It's not saying that if we don't stand and raise hands that we're praying wrong. There's cultural liberty there, okay? But the eternal principle that applied to them and us is he says that he desires that men pray regardless of the posture and how. Holy hands, notice that, not just the way you're holding them, but with holy hands, without wrath and without doubting. Now, holiness, wrath, and doubting are all things that have external experiences, but where do they really originate? In the heart, you see. What he's telling these men to do is, when they enter into a corporate worship service, have your life cleansed. Why do you think we start the services with a time of confession? We cannot worship God with sin in our lives. We need to get things right first. You say, well, I thought if I'm saved, I am saved. You are. But your fellowship, your relationship is hindered. Your worship is obstructed because God desires that you first repent, then bring your gift to the altar. You see? And so he wants these men to have a clear heart and a clear conscience, and he wants us to do the same. You can't come in here and worship when you have malice and anger towards your brother. And that's why I say over and over and over again, if there are disputes, the Bible tells us how to handle it. If you've got something against your brother or your sister, go to that person. If they won't listen, bring two or three with you. If they won't listen, bring it to the church. But ultimately, we cannot allow Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, service after service, day after day, to go on when there is bitterness and anger and resentment in our hearts towards someone else made in the image of God and then try to raise up holy hands and say we're worshiping God while we hate his people that he made. Again, forgiveness is on us. We can't make people like us back. We can't make people love us back. We can't make relationships work if the other side doesn't want it. All of that requires two people. But your part is to forgive. Your part is to have a clear conscience with God and with as many people as you can. How they respond is not your worry. Forgive them, love them, pray for them. If they hate your guts, let them go. You don't have to force a relationship. You just got to forgive them, and you just got to love them. And that's what Paul is saying here. We are to be holy, pray with holy hands, without wrath and without doubting. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I'm not saying every single, every single one of us has struggles at times with our faith, don't we? It's not just me, certainly. There are things going on. Is this not a struggle? Do we not have questions? I mean, I know God's got it. I know everything's going to be fine. Not a question in my mind. But still looking at the situation, every one of us have probably said, why? So, you know, let's not be so super spiritual that we pretend that we've got this all figured out and we never struggle with things, okay? It's, you're in a place where you're allowed to struggle. There's not a church that I've ever been in where people might act like they're not struggling. They might act like they got it all figured out. But I know better, and so do you. 
They don't. They need Jesus and they need grace and they need love from us. And they need help from us. And so he's saying, come in and just come in with faith. If it's mustard seed size faith, that's enough. As long as it's focused on the right object, which is Jesus, it's not about the size, it's about him. So he says, look at the hearts of the men. Get your hearts in the right place and you can do it. Then he goes into verse 9. I'll show you the same thing in that verse. He says, in like manner that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing the cultural side of things the braided hair the gold and the pearls the costly clothing the way that women do that is different in cultures and unfortunately a lot of times that has become a legalistic issue in some denominations if the women's hair isn't dragging the ground if the wrist is showing any skin you're going to get in trouble right it's, it's went too far and taken something that was more of a cultural thing and turned it into a universal principle. Now, there are principles in the way that we ought to adorn ourselves. And he says that in the text. Modesty and propriety or self-control. Those are the universal principles. The way that you do your hair may be different in cultures. The way that you dress yourself may be different in cultures, but the modesty transcends cultures. The self-control transcends cultures, you see? And that comes from the heart. So yeah, there's a cultural thing at play, no doubt. But there's a principle that God has for all of us. And why this would have made a lot of sense in their time is Ephesus was the bastion of feminism. All right? If, if any place in ancient culture had a feministic background, it was Ephesus. They had the temple of Diana there, or of Artemis. All kinds of sexual deviancy. They had prostitution going on as part of the worship. I mean, there was just a lot of sexuality, a lot of feminism. And a lot of the folks that were getting saved and coming into the church were coming out of that background, including the women. And so Paul is trying to tell Timothy how to teach and instruct them because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Come out from among them and be separate. And I'm not saying that this stuff just falls off. Some of it does when you get saved. Some of that stuff just falls away instantly, doesn't it? But sanctification takes time. It takes a lifetime. And so let's not always be too quick to disparage true Christians if they're not as far along as you are or as far along as you think they ought to be. Because everybody grows at a different pace. Now, they should be growing, and they need discipleship and instruction to help them grow. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's not get off in our little holy huddles and talk about people because they're not doing what we think they ought to do. Let's love them enough to help them, not tear them down with our tongues. Right? That's what they need. They need encouragement and help. They don't need to find out that the group of people that they thought loved them is talking bad about them. And so... Paul is trying to set the stage here for Timothy and Ephesus and for us. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he tries to tell the ladies in the text, and for us too, what they really ought to be known for. He says, but what is proper for women professing godliness is with good works. You see, there's, there's really two kinds of beauty. There's the external and there's the internal. There is both 
the physical and the moral type of beauty. And it's great if you can walk into a room and everybody's head turns because of your external beauty. But what's really beautiful to God is to be known as a servant whose heart is pure and who loves and obeys. That makes a man or a woman much more beautiful. Have you ever known somebody that was all sorts of pretty on the outside, but man, they were ugly on the inside? And for most people, I don't care how pretty you are, that's a big turnoff. Unless, like that lady that made the advertisement and put the pretty picture and wrote all sorts of ugly stuff, you don't have to shout this out. But why do you think the men in that situation were willing to overlook all the ugly stuff because of the pretty picture? What do you think ultimately was their goal? You know the answer to that, right? And that's what you're going to attract when you worry so much about the outside and don't let God work on the inside. You'll attract things, you know. Manure attracts things too. Let me just be honest. It does. And so you've got to understand ultimately that your heart is what God is concerned with. He's concerned with the inside. And like I said, this message is not just about picking on people's clothing at all. That's the secondary issue of this. The heart is what I want us to get at today. The heart is what I want you to see. And so I want to ask these questions to you. I just want you to think about this. What do your clothes say about your heart? If you went through your closet and looked at your stuff, what would your clothes say about your heart? Let me ask you another question. When you go shopping for clothes, and believe me, I sympathize with this, especially with ladies, because I know how hard it is, even if you want to try to find decent, modest clothes, how hard it is. I'm saying it's not possible, but I understand the struggle there. I do. I have a daughter. She shops for herself now, but we had to shop for her, and that was a while back, and it was hard even back then, so I get it. But I want to ask you, when you shop for clothes, are your choices governed by the culture or by Christ? When you go through the clothes rack, are you thinking about what's going to be attractive to the world or what would be pleasing to Christ? And ultimately, number three, whose approval are you seeking by what you wear? Whose approval ultimately are you seeking by what you wear? Because Paul is speaking to the church. He's speaking about worship, what goes on inside these walls when we worship together. And that's what I'm speaking about today to believers in a worship service. And he's speaking about anything that would detract or take away from God. Anything that's going to pull our eyes and our hearts and our minds away from God in a worship service is what Paul is talking about. And my heart is not to just beat you down with some legalistic set of rules. I'm not standing up here today. I'm not going to be publishing a dress code for the church to follow. But I'm going to give you the scriptures. I'm going to trust that as a believer you have the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to let him dictate your con to your conscience what you feel like is honoring and pleasing to him. And if you have a clear heart and a clear conscience before God, Brother George, I think, shared this with his youth. If you have a clear heart and a clear conscience before God, if you're humble enough to receive instruction, if you're not sure and you go to some godly people in the church and say, hey, what do you think about this outfit? And all five of them say, I wouldn't wear it. Hopefully you're humble enough to say, well, I thought it was okay. 
I trust these folks' counsel. I'll wear something else. You see? Sometimes you just, if you're not sure, ask. People that you can trust will tell you what you need to hear. It's as simple as that. It's really not hard. And I want to share with you from the heart in the last few minutes just about what I believe ultimately is the goal of these kinds of messages, guys, and how it helps our church, how it helps us as a body, and how it will help you individually. So let's just pretend for a moment that I was going to stand up here and we were going to put out a dress code that we expected everybody to follow. Everybody that's a member of this church has got to follow this dress code. As a matter of fact, I got it written out right here for you. And I want you to think about I want you to think about this. Think about it first and foremost for yourself. But think about what other people, any age, don't think about a specific person, but just others in the church. What would they say if this was the dress code of K. Russo Baptist Church? Number one, tops and bottoms must provide appropriate coverage at all times. Clothing must be worn in a manner that does not expose the torso, midriff, chest, cleavage, back, buttocks, or undergarments. Clothings with rips, tears, or holes above mid-thigh that exposes skin or undergarments may not be worn. Number two, lower garments are to be worn at waist level. We don't want to see your boxers, guys and must be properly fastened. Undergarments are not to be exposed when the church member sits, stands, raises their hands, or bends over. Clothing with rips, tears, or holes above mid-thigh that exposes skin or undergarments may not be worn. Number three, hats, hoods, coats, bandanas, sunglasses, gloves, sweatbands, or other head coverings are not to be carried or worn during church hours. Hoods may not be worn over a member's head. The leadership may approve the wearing of a head covering on an as-needed basis. And lastly, clothing, jewelry, tattoos, body piercing, adornments, or other personal items may not be worn or displayed if they are contrary to the church's mission or cause a distraction or disruption to the service. Specifically, clothing, jewelry, tattoos, or other personal items which specifically or generally contain, promote, or glorify, or refer, refer to alcohol, drugs, tobacco, sexual innuendo, sexually suggestive content, profane, vulgar, or lewd symbols, slogans, gangs, cults, antisocial or harassing behavior, hate, violence, death, suicide, gore, and or blood shall not be worn or displayed. If that was the policy of Caruso Baptist Church, do you think that there would be some people that would be upset? I do too. Do you know where I got that from? The student handbook for Hamilton High School. The only thing I changed was I took out students in school and made it church and members. My point is this, and I know they don't follow it, but if you're going to print something on a piece of paper and it's going to be voted into policy, then you ought to obey it or you ought to throw it in the garbage. And my point is this, and it's not to pick on kids. That I told you at the start, I'm not picking on an age. I'm not picking on kids. Here is my point. If a secular school, Kim shared this morning about what he saw at the graduation. There was anything and everything except God involved in this. In the, in the, and I don't expect a secular school to be out there worshiping God. I was proud to hear Edgewood did. They read some scripture and stuff, and kudos to them. But I, I don't expect secular institutions to train my children in godliness. That's my job. That's the church's job, right? But 
if school has a standard like this, how much more should the church of the living God be willing to have a standard? If a, if a secular organization that cares nothing about God cares enough to say to some degree it matters what you look like when you come in here because we have a purpose to teach you and we don't want to be distracted in our teaching. We don't want other kids to be oogling at you while they're trying to learn and we just don't want that. If a school can set that standard, I bet that, I mean, maybe they do. We got some teachers in here, but I doubt that a lot of the parents are coming to the teachers and complaining about the hand, but they may blow it off. But I bet they're not as upset as church members would be if we had some kind of standard like this. But my point is, why would we be okay with a secular school to have a standard, but then pretend that everything can go in the house of God? You see? That's my only point. Not picking on an age, not picking on anybody in particular. I'm just telling you that we have misplaced priorities when we think it's okay for outside sources to have standards, and the church doesn't. It's ridiculous. The Bible gives us a standard, and we ought to live up to that as who we are in Christ. I'm going to read to you. This is a bit lengthy, but I want you to hear this. A a well-known pastor, I won't mention his name, but he asked some of the men, and again, I'm not picking on just women, but I want women to hear this because I don't think sometimes you necessarily look at it from this angle. And, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet that I know what some of the response will be, and I'll try to answer that too. But he asked some of the men in his church, some saved men in his church, to write a letter to the women in the church about the struggle and the battle that it is for us as men in today's society with the way that our culture dresses. I want to read these to you. I thought it was really good. This one man wrote this. He said, each and every day on campus is a battle, a battle against my sin, a battle against temptation, a battle against my depraved mind. Every morning I have to cry out for mercy, strength, and a renewed conviction to flee youthful lusts. The Spirit is faithful to bring me the renewal I need to prepare me to do the war against my sin. Yet the temptations still exist. I am thankful that God has created me to be attracted to women. However, campus is loaded is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere, and it is guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. I either have to be actively engaging my mind and my spirit to praying, quoting scripture, listening to worship music, or simply looking at the sidewalk to make it through unscathed. Many days it takes all four to be safe. The thing that women do not seem to fully grasp is that the temptation towards lust does not stop for us as men. It is continual. It is aggressive. It does all it can to lead men down to death. They have a choice, the women, they have a choice to help or deter its, gro- its goal. Consider this message my appeal on behalf of the men for you to help us deter the goal of lust in our lives. It says, sometimes when I see, I think this is another writer, sometimes when I see a girl provocatively dressed, I will say to myself, she probably doesn't know that 101 guys are going to devour her in their minds today. But then again, maybe she does. To be honest, I don't know the truth. The truth of why she chooses to dress the way she does, the way she chooses to walk, the way she chooses to act, I don't know because I have never sat down with a girl and asked her why. All I need to know is that the way she presents herself to the world is bait for my sinful mind to latch onto, and I need to avoid it at all costs. He continues, For the most part, the church 
serves as a sanctuary from the continual barrage of temptation towards sin. However, the church's members are not free from sin yet, and there are girls both ignorant and knowledgeable of men's sinful tendencies. He says, I must confess that even church can have several minds scattered about. To the girls who are ignorant, please serve your brother and have your dad screen your wardrobe. Ask him how you can better choose holiness over worldliness. He is a guy. He knows more than you do on the issue. And to the girls who don't follow the pattern of the world, thank you. You are following Scripture's commands and helping your brothers in the process. Last one. Another gentleman writes, Having said all that, if I could say anything to the women in the church, it would be this. First, there's not a man I know that doesn't struggle in some way with lust. If they had any idea what went through the guys' minds, it would probably vastly change the way they dress. Secondly, I think most importantly, God has created His church to be a resting place for Christians, to be a place where people encounter God without all the distractions. It's disappointing when I walk into the church or an event with the church and have to deal with the same temptations that I face in the world. But I rejoice whenever I see a girl or woman that is attempting to serve the Lord and guys by dressing modestly. You have no idea how sweet and challenging it is when I see a woman who has decided not to flaunt her body like the culture shouts for her to do, but rather she has decided that serving the Lord and her brothers is more important. Glory to God for women like that. And let us be a church with men who are committed to purity and women who are committed to modesty. Amen. Amen. That was wonderful. Because, and to wrap it all up, it's this, guys. Jesus said, if any man would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The Bible talks about dying to self. And one of the hardest things for us to do is sometimes to set aside our individuality for the betterment of others. Because it's, and I get it, I get it for a, for a woman when they hear these things to say, well... It's not my fault if that guy can't control his thoughts. I ought to be able to wear what I want, and if he's a perv and can't stop looking at me, that's on him. But do you see, guys, yes, we're not, ladies, we're not excusing the battle that men face. We're not excusing our lust and pointing the finger and saying, well, if you just dressed like a bunch of Amish ladies, we wouldn't have this problem anymore. Listen, Amish have problems with the same thing we do, all right? If it was as simple as just wearing different clothes, we would do that. We wouldn't need a Savior to die on the cross if we could just fix it by changing some stuff. That's not how this works. The problem is the heart. And the only way we're going to overcome it is through Christ, but we need one another along the way. If I can help you in your walk, I'm willing to do it. Paul said, it's not unlawful for me to eat meat in Romans 14. He said, but if that makes me cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Can you imagine that? He said, I will never go to Texas Roadhouse and order a steak again if that upsets my vegan neighbor. What would we say? Well, they're missing out. Sorry about your luck. I'm going to get my steak. Paul was willing to give up that to better somebody else. And that's the goal, guys, is yes, we have liberty. But if we can do something, and again, I'm talking about in the church. He's talking about in the church. When we come in here, we ought to give it some thought to say, is this going to help worship or hinder it? Is it going to make my brother or sister stumble, or is it going to help them in their walk? If we really love each other, those are things that we ought to consider when we get up on Sunday morning or when we lay our clothes out on Sunday night. You know, And I've never been one. I'm standing up here today in jeans and a T-shirt. All right, 
There's times when you'll see me in a three-piece suit. I don't think for one minute that my clothes necessarily are doing anything to make me more holy than you. I don't think that God is not pleased with my preaching if I don't wear a suit. But I do represent the church, and I do want to give him my best, whether that's nice, a pair of clean jeans and a T-shirt or a nice suit and tie. Some people don't have it. Some Christians can't afford it. I know that's an excuse sometimes. Well, I can't come to church because I don't have anything to wear. We're not asking you to deck yourself out in a three-piece suit. We're giving you patience and grace to grow, guys. Absolutely. I get it. I would never... I, I talked to someone one time. I forget, I forget what church it was. But somebody came into church. I don't, I, they weren't even saved. They came into church with a hat on. And one of the, I think it was one of the deacons went to them and said, we don't wear hats in this church. And that guy never came back, and to my knowledge, never went to church and died a few months later. And died lost as far as I know. That one thing about the stupid hat. Listen, I don't want to stand before God someday and say, aren't you proud of me? I got that guy with the hat to leave. Do you think God's going to care if that guy had a hat on? course not in the big picture now again as we disciple people as they grow in christ we can have conversations like that but let's not be so arrogant to think that just because we know certain things and we act a certain way that that we got to be we're not the holy spirit we don't have to go around and tell everybody how they all live right show them the word love them disciple them help them don't tear them down but it's not just about the dress, guys. It's ultimately today about the heart. And that's what I want to conclude. Phyllis is going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. Phyllis, you can come on up. It's ultimately about our hearts. And I'm just asking you today, where is your heart? Where is your 